this morning I want to talk about the kingdom of God. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, what do we really mean? Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus went to great lengths and used many parables and many illustrations of the kingdom of God, but do we really think of the kingdom of God rightly? Or do we even know what a kingdom is because we don't have kings and queens and, and monarchies and none of us have ever been in that, that system. It's completely foreign to us. But that language was not to Jesus' readers. They understood who kings were. They longed for the days when they had a king over Israel again. And so what we need to see this morning is that it is a real kingdom. Yet it is in our midst, it is a real thing that we are a part of right now in Christ. But it is also not of this world. So it's not of the form and substance of this world. It's not of the things that, that we can understand. This kingdom has a real king, it has real citizens who are under his authority, and it has a real standard of righteousness. There is clear good and evil, there is clear righteousness, there are things that are of this kingdom and things that do not belong to this kingdom. And so what we're going to see this morning is another example, as we've seen several so far in Mark, of examples of this kingdom that challenge the disciples' idea for the messianic kingdom. Remember, still they're thinking in their mind, He is coming in a glorious messianic kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. And He is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And all the nations are going to come to Him. And we will be there with Him. This world, as it is, is going to be reformed by our messianic king. And so, there's a fundamental challenge to their nationalistic idea. But if you go even deeper, there's a fundamental challenge to us as humans what we tend to think of when we think of greatness when we think of power when we think of authority when we think of importance because whether we realize it or not we can't help but be more influenced by the world around us we can't help but be influenced by politicians and celebrities that you should never be influenced by and the, the, the world around us that seems to aspire to certain levels of greatness and th- seems to prop up some attributes over others. But what we're going to see in the text this morning, what we see very often, is that it is quite opposite. It is an anti-kingdom in that sense. It is anti, it is against the kingdom of this world. And what we should aspire to as citizens of the kingdom of God is quite different than what... Um, the world aspires to. So this morning we're going to deal with a very a weighty passage that deals with the nature of the kingdom of God and Christ's example and his suffering. And if that wasn't enough, we might step on some theological toes. So all in a day's work, let's dive right in. All right, chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35, and we're going to cover 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus says, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit at my right hand, or my left, is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, your plan of redemption is amazing. Your kingdom is beyond our comprehension. Lord, I pray that every time we open your word, we are challenged anew. We grow in our understanding of you. And that causes us to worship you and grow in our love for you. And that would increase our humility, our patience, our love for one another, that we may learn to serve. We may learn to be slaves of righteousness, bond servants of one another, building each other up in love, laying down our lives for one another because you sent your son to lay down his life for us. May your church, this church, and as Jonathan said, every church that is faithful to the gospel, may we proclaim it and practice it. May we love it and live it. May we be a light in the darkness, a city on a hill, salt of the earth, That as you bring the lost sheep home to your fold, they would be welcomed in. They would be loved and trained and cared for and raised up. So that your name would be glorified in every tongue and nation. That Jesus Christ would receive glory, honor, and praise to the glory of God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. So one of the things you may have noticed or you may not have noticed, that as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and last week we dealt with the third of Jesus' three predictions for his death, burial, and resurrection. After each of them, you would think this would be humbling. You would think that there would be a lot of questions and a lot of concerns among the disciples. But after each one, the next thing that is recorded is a concern for themselves. Peter, in chapter 8, scolds Jesus. Never a good idea. In chapter 9, they ask who's going to be the greatest. And in chapter 10, the other two of the big three, the, the, the inner circle, the three pillars, Peter, James, and John, all stick their feet in their mouths. All get way beyond their pay grade and say, and ask for something they should not ask for. Everything is going to change for them. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die. And not just by accident, on purpose, a horrific death. And then he's going to be raised again. And we see that James and John have their priorities straight. So we're going to deal with that this morning. And I think it's interesting that the last, 
verse that we dealt with a couple weeks ago, verse 31, this is almost an indictment of the purpose of that. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. It's an indictment, but also an application. What does that look like in the kingdom of God? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Well, James and John, as the disciples are, are here for sermon illustration. They are here to, to show us what it means when the first desire to be first and become last. And those who put themselves last will be placed first. So we'll get there as we get there. So we begin with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, the best wrestling tag team in all of Scripture, um, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine the boldness? There's many other words you could call this, but to come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, write us a blank check. And for those of you who don't know what a check is, it's a thing that you write on that takes the place of money. Uh, you can fill it out to wherever you want at whatever denomination you want. They're basically saying, give us a blank check. Whatever we ask, will you do it? It's like the worst setup that someone just tells you to agree with, with them sight unseen. And this is what they're doing. This is a very bold request. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And we've covered this before, but the place of prominent honor to the king is at the right hand. And just next to that is whoever sits at the left hand. And they said, one of us should be in one of those places. We are the greatest next to Jesus. Just think about the boldness. But they were so confident that they brought their mom along. So Matthew adds that. If you really want something, send, send mom in there to appeal to the, heart, to the heartstrings and we don't know if this is her idea or, or, or their idea. She's one of those soccer moms who think that their, their kids should be all-stars and they should be playing. And, and, you know, she falls down before Jesus reverently and they rightfully say that Jesus is, is, is in glory or will be in glory. But the irony and the audacity to put them to talk about Jesus' glory with only their own glory in mind. Because they rightly estimate who Jesus is. We know that there's a glorious kingdom coming. We don't fully understand it, but they overestimate who they are. They think very highly of themselves. And so right away, there's a great lesson here. We see in the church, let's just not even talk about the world because that's, that's too easy. That's, that's low-hanging fruit. But in the church, how often do we see church leaders who talk about the glory of God, but their actions and their lifestyles only show their own glory? It's almost like every week we get disappointed by some high-profile figure. They're not meant to be our focus. They're not meant to be our, the, the basis of our faith. But it is very difficult to seek your own glory if not impossible, and the glory of God at the same time. No, it is impossible. Sorry. And then I want to go to get a little closer to home, as we often do. So as we look at them, how often are we guilty here? How often are we so concerned with where we stand? With how important we are? What's our rank? Looking to the person to the left and right of us. Am I ahead of them? Am I behind them? 
How often do we see people in the, in the body of Christ jockeying per, for, for position? It doesn't matter if it's a big church, a small church. We, we see it a lot more in a small church because we all know each other. But it's not any different. You meet with pastors, and the first question they always ask is how many, you know, how many people, and you know, how big is your building, and things. The, the, some of the conversations I've heard among pastors are really sad. I've had great conversations with pastors, too. But how often does this happen? We're not immune from this. So these examples are in Scripture for us to watch out for. For us to be careful of our own egos, of our own pride or our own self-deprecation that is constantly trying to be compared to others. And Jesus is going to challenge that. And, um, and as He usually is, He is way more patient than they deserve. Because they do desire a good thing. I mean, if you're going to ask for anything, Jesus, let us be with you forever. Let us be right next to you. It's not bad in and of itself. But they don't understand what they're asking. They don't even understand the kingdom. And so Jesus has to get them to understand the kingdom. And he uses two metaphors to challenge that understanding. The cup and baptism. And I want to deal with each one of these individually. And so both of these has cultural and biblical significance. One, if you do an Old Testament search on the cup, the cup is, is, is a portion that is given out by God. It is measured out. And sometimes it's blessing. We know this in the 23rd Psalm. My cup overflows. My cup runs over. It is something given by God in measure. And it can be good. He can be our cup. He can be our portion. But most frequently, it is a cup of divine wrath. If you read through the prophets, in the Psalms, what God gives to the wicked nations is a cup of drunken wrath. That they will drink it and stagger. That they will feel the full weight of the wrath of God. And it's the latter that Jesus is talking about, not the former. This is the cup that Jesus prays about in the garden. Father, if at all possible, take this cup from me. but yet not my will, but your will be done. This cup that is spoken of, everyone on the face of the earth, everyone who has ever breathed, everyone who was born of man and woman, rightfully deserves to drink the cup. The, the condemnation in the Old Testament is the wicked will drink this cup. This is a horrible thing. Everyone deserves to drink it, but not everyone will. So I want to back up a little bit. We're going to spend some time in Isaiah 51, 52, and 53 this morning. So I want to start in Isaiah 51, because this, these texts build upon one another. So in the previous chapters, we get the promise of the servant of the Lord and all the things that the servant of the Lord will do, the promises of salvation to Israel. Because there's a lot of talk of the wickedness of Israel. There is this idea that a future Israel will be better than the current Israel because the current Israel is messed up. The current Israel is going after other gods and worshiping things that are not gods. But there is a future Israel when the servant of the Lord comes who will be different. I want you to look at the addresses in Isaiah 51, 
Verse 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. This is a promise to the righteous. Again in verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, who fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their evil doings. Skipping ahead, same people. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem has already seen some of God's wrath. That's why they're in exile. They rightly deserve the punishment. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is the cup that Jesus is talking about. There is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has born, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she has brought up, there is none faithful within Israel. They have all gone astray. They're all wicked. They've drunk this cup of staggering. God's wrath is upon them. But that's not the end of the story. Skip ahead to verse 21. Therefore hear this, again speaking to the righteous, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. You all deserve it, but I'm going to remove it. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. So this is the promise, and it, and it sets up what we're going to look at later in chapter 52. But chapter 52 is the salvation and redemption of the Lord, the coming of the Gospel, the coming of the suffering servant, and the ransom for many is where we're going to land later. So keep this idea in your head that Israel's wicked, Israel deserves this cup, but they won't all drink it. And God will give His reasoning in just a moment. So that's the cup. Second, baptism. He's not talking about the ordinance. He's not talking about what we do after someone confesses and we baptize them with water. Before you can understand the ordinance, before you can understand what we do in the church to professing believers, you have to understand what it signifies. Jesus is calling on the the, the meaning of the word baptism. And so it is a very clear meaning. It's a a metaphor. But you can't understand when we baptize someone in the church until you understand what the word means. It means to immerse, to dip, to plunge, to die, D-Y-E, and die, D-I-E. It means a complete covering with water. That's it. Now, I'm not trying to be um, condescending. I'm not trying to be disparaging. I love brothers who differ, but there is not a lexicon on the planet that says sprinkle. If you want to be technical, it is a plunging. It is a going into the depths. If you want to be factual about it, and I had to throw this in there, when you... Sprinkle someone, you dip your fingers in and sprinkle on them. The only thing that's getting baptized are your fingers. The baptism is a full plunging. It is a full covering. It, it must be this, because if it's only a sprinkling, Jesus' death is not that bad. He repeats it three times. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized three times? This is no light matter. In, in, uh, in Luke 12, Luke brings this up. Just one verse. Luke 12, 50. J- 
Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it has been accomplished. This is not a light thing. This is a complete immersion, a complete plunging, a complete dipping into Sheol, into death. Being taken from this world into the outer darkness. It's meant to be vivid. It's meant to be intimidating. The disciples didn't have all of the connotations with the word baptism that that we have. They understood it in its Roman context. It's the word used when you ship a, uh, sink a ship in battle. It is plunged and it goes down and it is at the bottom of the ocean. Are you ready for that? These two together paint a very vivid picture. The cup of wrath from God, divine punishment. And death into the outer darkness, human punishment. Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity are going to do something and that's what he's on his way to do. The cup and the baptism bring together the picture of what Jesus is doing. And this is meant to be sobering for his disciples. Are you able? And living up to their names, the sons of thunder said, yes, we are able. You might be tough, but you don't realize what you're asking. But they want glory. Whatever it takes, Jesus, we want to be next to you in your glory. But as we've seen so far, there is no glory without suffering. The suffering must come first. And so Jesus responds to them. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But wait a second. How can they do what we just attributed to Jesus? They will suffer like Christ. They will not suffer as Christ. And so there is a parallel between both of these and the life of the apostles. Dealing one with the cup. In the early church, the term cup had come to, had come to be synonymous with martyrdom. Taking on punishment for the sake of Christ. Just as He took on the righteous requirement of God's wrath, they take on the righteous fulfillment of Christ's suffering. James, this will be on the screen, I want to do these, these quickly. He was the first martyr of the twelve. In Acts 12, when they are the enemy of the church, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. First martyr of the apostles. This is the cup that he would take. John, the last living of the apostles, was afflicted, was persecuted, was jailed on the island of Patmos, was not an island getaway. And this is what John says. Revelation 1.9 I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, I have gone through suffering. I am your partner in tribulation and the kingdom. He never forgot his place in the kingdom. Notice how John goes from asking to be at the right or left hand to associating himself with tribulation and patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the Isle of Patmos. This is where the Romans sent their insurrectionists. This is where they, they, they sent you to calm down for a while. You lived a couple years in isolation, if not more. I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. Why am I there? Because I testified to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, you will take my cup. You will suffer for me. And you will proclaim me. 
But more importantly, the baptism which I am baptized with, you will be baptized with. Paul, in Romans, where he spends the most time on baptism of anyone in the New Testament, what does Paul associate this with? This, this metaphor now comes, now comes to its fully orbed understanding. It is the death with Christ, the plunging, the dying with Christ. These are beautiful words. The baptism which I will be baptized with, you will be baptized with. And here's what Paul says. Verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? This is a real thing. If you are baptized, you are baptized with Him into His death. His death to sin. We were buried, therefore, with Him. You see the metaphor continue by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is no baptism without death to sin and life to Christ. And that is what they inherited. Through faith in Him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they died with Him and rose again to new life. And if you were in Christ, so did you. Jesus took on the cup of staggering, the cup of the wrath of God, so that it could become a cup of blessing overflowing jesus was baptized into death dying to your sin that you might too die with it this is beautiful news for them and beautiful news for us without suffering there is no glory but because of his suffering we are his in glory because of his suffering we are we have newness of life and this is why we said last week and the week before and the week before on their way to jerusalem these things must happen Without his suffering, there is no glory. Without him going first, without his cup and his baptism, there is no life for us. But because of his cup and because of his baptism, we are in his kingdom. And so as he unfolds this, I don't know how much of this they understand, but I want you to understand this. If you are in Christ and he has gone before you, as sure as he accomplished the work, is as sure as you inherit it. And if you are apart from Christ, apart from his cup and his baptism, you have no hope. And maybe this is starting to sink in. Luke adds another helpful detail in this in Luke 22. The blessing that they will inherit, they will also reign with him in his kingdom. Luke 22, verses 28 through 30. So right after the same account, Luke adds the detail. Luke 22, 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. It's amazing how gracious he is because they didn't. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. You are assigned to my kingdom because you have stayed with me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. For James and John, there is eternal reward. For the twelve, they will become the new leaders of the tribes of Israel. And to theirs is the kingdom. And that should be enough. That should be all the glory they seek. That is all yours, but to sit at my right hand and to sit at my left hand that is predetermined and appointed by the prerogative of the Father. Verse 40. But to sit in my right hand and in my left hand is not mine to grant, 
but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. The Father has prepared this for them. The other things, you'll get what you ask for. But the last one is not of your concern. Way above your pay grade. So the other ten can apparently hear all this, and they're not happy about that. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And there's speculation about their indignation. What made them indignant? What made them so beside themselves and angry? Is it righteous offense at their question? Or was it jealousy that they didn't think of it first? I don't know. Maybe, or probably there's already some resentment that Peter, James, and John get special treatment. That they go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. That, that they get pulled into the, 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 the side rooms when Jesus is healing. Maybe there's just one more offense, one more slight that they're upset about. Either way, whether it's pride or jealousy, it's scary how easy that is to creep into the church. These are guys who are with Jesus, looking Him in His eyes every day, eating with Him, listening to Him teach, watching Him pray, learning from Him, and they're divided. We have conversations all the time about why, Lord, is your church so divided? The church was divided when it stood with Jesus. That is our nature, unfortunately. Sadly. We must recommend our own temptation toward jealousy and toward comparison. This is as fundamental to our wicked flesh as anything else. I see someone else. You see this in two and three-year-olds. I only want it because you have it. What you have, I want. And once I have it, I don't want it anymore. It doesn't change when we get older. And the, and the disciples are, are showing this for us. Standing in front of Jesus, you are with the Lord of glory in the flesh. He has promised you that you will be with him in his kingdom. And you're still picking fights with one another. It's sad how often that happens in the church. It's sad how often Pride and bitterness and pettiness gets between brothers and sisters, and it's, and it's heartbreaking. And so I have a question for you. Here's a good test. Well, am I guilty of that? Can I rejoice in someone else's role? Are you able to do that? When someone else is promoted above you, when someone else is placed higher than you, when someone else is recognized before you, can you say, praise the Lord that my brother or sister has this gift? Praise the Lord of what God is doing in them. Or does a little bit of you wish it was you? Or a lot of you wish it was you? Can you celebrate your role in the body? Can you? Can you say, Lord, thank you that even though my gifts seem insignificant, I will use them to your glory. Even though my gifts seem significant, I will not think too highly of myself. Can you celebrate where the Lord has you and not worry about trying to get up the ladder and competing with others? That's a really hard question for a lot of us. Because many of us can't get out of our own heads and are constantly comparing ourselves to others. I wish I was where they were. I wish I wasn't where I was. This is nothing new, but this is something we must root out and we must be aware of. And Jesus, knowing what's going on in their minds and in their hearts and wants to put a stop to the bickering, calls them, summons them to himself. 
Verse 42, when Jesus called them to him and said to them, he's going to use an outside example. You know that those who are considered rulers are those who seem to be something of the Gentiles. Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Both of these terms here, Lord over and exercise authority over, it's the, the, the picture of gaining mastery or power over someone else. It is a desire to prop themselves up and push others down. Selfish ambition. And they, they knew it in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had this great aristocracy that if you were in the ruling classes, that you would eat at the finest restaurants, sit at the finest tables. You would have people waiting on you. There would be one set of rules for you, another set of rules for someone else. Good thing our rulers are nothing like that. But they knew this. They knew the wickedness that comes from power, and they hated the Romans for it. Yet here they are being tempted to do it themselves. So as we think about that, what about us? How do we view power? How do we view greatness? How do we view authority in this this life? Because as I said earlier, our examples are politicians, athletes, and celebrities. We're in rough shape. But so often I see so many people and so many Christians unfortunately looking to them for leadership. Or thinking that that's what greatness is like. And that's what, that's what prominence looks like. But it is so different. Jesus says, don't do what you've seen. Don't do what the wicked Romans have. You, you know those things. You know how wicked they are. It shall not be like that among you. That is not just an indictment of the Romans. That's an indictment of humans. If you consider yourself among the human race, you are right there with it. Because if you were given power, you would have all the same temptations. But Jesus tells them the kingdom of God is not like that. But it shall not be so among you. Not so with you. This is not my kingdom. You want to be great? You know what greatness is? You're asking to sit on my right hand and sit on my left hand. Let me put this in perspective for you. You want to know what greatness is? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Ouch. They're asking for glory. He's telling them to serve. Jesus is flipping their own pride and their own self-importance upside down. So there's two Greek words I want you to know. They're simple Greek words, and um, they're helpful to understand the kingdom of God and what Jesus is setting up here. The first one is diakonos, from where we get our English word deacon. The word simply means servant or worker or minister. All those are used in the New Testament. And it's a compound of, of two words, which I love. It, me, it literally comes from two words, to raise and dust. It means you are working in such a way that you're kicking up dust, that you are diligent in your work. You are a faithful worker. You are a laborer. You are a faithful minister. And if you want to be great, be a servant. And as I said earlier, it is impossible to seek your own glory and be a servant of the gospel and be a minister of the gospel. You cannot prop yourself up and serve others. This is what Jesus is getting at the heart of. You must be humble first. You must know that you serve me. And in serving me, you serve others. There is no place for arrogance in my kingdom. If you want to be great, you must serve. 
And here's the difference. The world seeks to exalt itself. The world wants to be great, so they try to force themselves in positions of greatness. We serve. And our King calls us great. Our King exalts us. Let Christ exalt you. Let Christ lift you up. Let Christ put you in your rank. Don't try to force it yourself. This is where he starts. First be diakonos, a servant. How often is this our mindset? So right off the bat, I am so thankful for those of you who have a servant's heart. I love those. I love to see people get joy out of serving. That they are smiling when other people are are smiling. And we have so many of those in our body, and I am so thankful for that. And it is a good thing. Don't ever let anyone diminish you because you can't publicly quantify what you do. You serve well. You serve lovingly. You serve in secret. And God is glorified in that. And that's a good thing. And we do that well as a body. And we should keep doing that well because that is greatness in the kingdom. If you are not considered great in this world, you are blessed. Because if you serve unto Christ, your greatness will go on forever. And for those of us who are not naturally servants, this is a struggle against our flesh. This is a struggle against putting ourselves before others. This is a struggle of thinking about ourselves first and not caring for and serving others. Our flesh hates this. And so those of you who are brothers and sisters who are servants, you are a great example for us. Keep it up. And we need to be that example for one another because the world may not notice it, but when people come here and we serve them, and we care for them, and we love them, they see kingdom greatness, whether they understand it or not. So that's the first concept, the servant. But he takes it a step further. And whoever must be first, not just great, but first, James and John are asking to be first and second. Whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not defined how it is in the kingdom of man. In fact, it is the complete opposite. Again, he's referencing the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This second Greek word that many of you have probably heard, it's doulos. It means slave. It means bondservant. Someone who is obligated to. But what's different is that you could be born into slavery in their, in, in their culture, but you could also buy yourself out of slavery. You could also sell yourself into slavery because of a debt. This is someone who puts themselves in the obligated service of another because of a debt. This is what Jesus is saying. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be first? Be a slave. Sell yourself to me because you owe me a debt. Be slave of all because you will reign with me in glory. Jesus ups the ante with each one of these. Be a servant? That's a great thing. You want to be first among all? Be a slave. And he uses himself as the primary example here. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He should have came to be first, but he came to be last. He could have came reigning. He could have came with 
heavenly armies, the, the, the heavenly hosts, and destroyed Rome and all the wicked just the way the disciples wanted him to, but he came last. He came humble to a poor family in a small town and in, in an enslaved nation. And Jesus always leads by example, coming as the suffering servant. And in him we see two inseparable kingdom actions, to serve and to give. They're personified in the Son of Man, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Quickly on each one of these, to serve. He had unselfish concern for the welfare and well-being of others. I'm going to put you before myself. I will serve you to show you how much you matter to me. He came to serve. He came out of love as we saw last week and to give his life. He gave his time, he gave his energy, but most importantly, he gave his life. He counted others more valuable than his own life here on earth. And there is nothing greater than giving up your life for your loved ones. He is our example in this, the one who serves and the one who gives unto his own life. This is the kingdom of God, to serve and to give of yourself. Because this world is passing away. Jesus knew his days are short. Your days are short. He did not invest in riches here. He did not get caught up in the things that the culture is caught up in. He was about his father's business. And he went home faithfully. Knowing that eternity and glory waits. And so he follows up with the why. The reason for all this. We addressed this last week. Up to this point, we have not seen the why. We know where Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We know what's going to happen. He's going to be turned over and die. We don't know when it's going to happen at Passover and then three days after. But we don't know why all this is happening. The first time Mark mentions it is right here. In order for you to get the kingdom, you have to know why all of this is being done. To give his life as a ransom for many. Such a short and powerful phrase with so much weight. First, the term ransom also pulled from the servant-slave realm. The word ransom is a specific term, means to pay the price to free a slave. That is what Jesus uses. Jesus continues that theme. I will give my life as a ransom, as the price for your slavery. Why can you serve as a slave? Because I have bought you from your slavery to sin. And you are mine. And when, when, when the Son pays the price, when you are free, you are free indeed. There's no take-backs, there's no going back. He has paid the price, you are free. And He pays His life as a ransom for many. This is going to be our little theological aside. I think this is important to deal with, especially since we're in Isaiah. It's a very big question. Who did Christ give His life for? Who are the many? What does the many mean? Of the doctrines of grace, limited atonement creates the most stumbling blocks. If you don't have one, you don't have them all. Who did Jesus actually die for? Who are the many? Well, let's look at it biblically. And let's look at it logically. 
This idea of particular redemption. Was there a group of people that Jesus died for, or did he die for everyone all the same? There is an exclusive character to the term many. Exclusive meaning it has a number attached to it. We know who the many are. It is not inclusive meaning the many meaning all. And I will prove that biblically. I want you to see why. Now is when we go back to Isaiah. So, since we've set all this up, Israel's wickedness, the promise to remove the cup from Israel, we looked at Isaiah 51, look at Isaiah 52. Here comes the ransom language. Here comes what happens, Isaiah 52, starting in verse, yeah, start in verse 1. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion, speaking to Israel. Put on your beautiful garments. Ring any bells? The spotless garments of the bride. Those who have been redeemed. Does this sound, does any of this other stuff sound familiar? For there shall be no more come into you the uncircumcised, meaning those who are not holy unto the Lord, or the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Slavery language. You are now free. Awake. How's that going to happen? For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. There is a real redemption here. There's a real promise. And right after this is the blessing of those who will carry the good news, the gospel in verse 7. So you've got this promise of salvation coming to Israel. Those who are enslaved will no longer be enslaved. They will be, they will be pure. They will be redeemed without money. How will they be redeemed? Enter the suffering servant. The end of 52 and 53. I wish I had time to go through all 53, but I can't. I want to jump right into verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is God's plan. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. How are they being purchased? How is that ransom being paid? His offering for their guilt. He shall see his offering. The resurrection will put him in touch with and in sight of his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here's where everything comes together in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the suffering servant, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Let's put this all together. The suffering servant, the righteous one, by his offering, pays the price for enslavement, redeems them, ransoms them, and makes them righteous. This ransom price that he's paying is not just for the possibility of salvation. It is for the perfection of salvation. This is not just freedom from sin. This is freedom in righteousness. The righteous one makes others righteous. He was pierced for our transgressions. The cross actually accomplishes something. There was effective and effectual atonement on the cross. Sins actually forgiven. Righteousness actually given through his resurrection and new life. This is why we must think about this biblically and logically. Who did Christ die for? Those would say he died for all the sins of all the world, then they would all be righteous. No one believes that. But Isaiah tells us that the, those who receive the offering, 
they will also receive righteousness. And if you carry this analogy through logically, if you pay the price for a slave, they're actually redeemed. You don't redeem a slave from slavery. You don't give them freedom and then send them back into enslavement. That would make you a cruel master. That would not make it redemption at all. Especially with Jesus. Would we say that his blood is ineffective for sin? Would we say that his sacrifice didn't do enough? It actually does something. That's why this is such good news. And his kingdom is a real kingdom based on real promises, based on real events that, ac- that accomplish real things. He gave his life as a ransom for many. The many, I want to prove in just a moment from a few New Testament passages and then we'll close up, are the saints, his body, the citizens of his kingdom. And they're not just redeemed, they're righteous. This cannot be applied to everyone in the same way. A couple quick verses. This one you should know. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see this come together in one beautiful verse. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew, knew no sin. What's the whole goal of Jesus taking on sins? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is not a partial stop. He doesn't just forgive sins so you can hopefully find Him someday. He forgives sins so that you will be redeemed and righteous. There is no partial work of Jesus Christ. We've been studying this in Hebrews. I want to look at Hebrews 9. Also helps to put this together. Hebrews 9 beginning halfway through verse 26. But as it is, He has appeared once for all. Nothing further needed, no more sacrifices, no more work at the end of the ages to put away sin by this ransom, the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once. Notice the connection here. To bear the sins of many. When he takes on your sin, what happens? When he comes a second time, he doesn't have to deal with sin again because he's already dealt with it. When he comes back a second time, he will save those who eagerly await him. Translation, if he dies for you, you are his. You are on the edge of your seat. You are waiting for him. Your sins are gone. They are cast into the abyss. They are taken on and and righteously paid for by him. And then the beautiful picture of the many we see in Revelation 5. It's the last one I want to look at, and then we're going to quickly apply what we've learned. You want to see the picture of the many in glory. Verse 9, uh, Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. When Jesus ransomed someone, the price is paid, the debt is cleared, they are in God. When he pays the ransom, look, how, look who they are after that. Verse at the end of verse 9 and verse 10, from every tribe, every language, and people and nation, this is the many. Because the Jews were thinking, he's just going to come redeem Israel and everybody else be damned. No, the many, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group on the earth will be represented in the people of God. And who will they be? His ransom makes them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. His kingdom produces priests and kings. His ransom produces people who are righteous forever. That little phrase is so powerful. I give my life as a ransom for many. Don't think it's 
some ethereal, empty idea. It is real. It is effective for God's people. By his cup and by his baptism, Jesus shows his service. His love and therefore his greatness. As laying down his life for all the saints, it shows that he is greatest of all. And that is the concern. Two quick points of application. How do we apply what we learn about the kingdom? One, Christ is our example. He did not value his own life or his own comfort. But in him, we are his kingdom. We are sons in his kingdom. And out of our response of joy, we are bonded to him. We are united to him. We are bond servants. And we serve the saints joyfully in service of our king because he is great. Because he is high and lifted up. No matter where we stand, if we are least in the kingdom of God, as Jesus tells us, you are greater than anyone who has ever walked the face of the earth. He is our example. More importantly, he is our redeemer. We don't have to worry about our, our status or our role in this life or the next. We have something far greater. A ransom paid for our forgiveness of sins and for our righteousness. Rank is irrelevant. First, second, 5,487,542. It doesn't matter because we are redeemed and righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, how humbling it is to be called by your name. How awesome your mercy and your grace. We deserve your cup of wrath. We deserve eternal torment and separation from you. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve for him to stand in our place. We don't deserve his righteousness but we praise you for it. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us what we do not deserve. Forgive us when we seek our own greatness and our own kingdoms. Forgive us when our pride and our jealousy and our comparison and our bickering gets in the way of your glory. Lord, humble us. Call us to repentance. Help us to rejoice in where you have called us. Help us to rejoice in where you have called our brothers and sisters. Help us to rejoice in our redemption. Help us to rejoice in our ransom. Help us to rejoice in our righteousness. Help us to, a to be a people who are joy joyful. No matter how much or little we have in this world, help us to leave it all behind, that it would have no strings on our hearts. Because your kingdom awaits us. Glory awaits us. Feasting with you resting with you, reigning with you. And your power and might like the thunder awaits us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.